0: How to Play, episode 36, The Settlers of Catan. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and today we are going to talk about The Settlers of Catan. This episode was recorded on April 12th, 2012. This is a bit of a departure from the normal, heavy, deep, complex strategy games that I tackle, but I could not leave this series without this game. It is too good of a game and too important a game to me personally to not have an episode. I know there's a lot of you hardcore gamers that will probably switch this one off because you've played this game many, many times and good for you. But this episode is directed at those who have never played this game before. Whether you're a seasoned gamer or whether you're someone new to the world of board gaming, The Settlers of Catan is a game that you should be familiar with because it is a great game and it is a classic. Paired alongside this episode, I'm going to include episode 36X, my second expansion episode, because this game has spawned... huge amount of expansions and spin-off games and a lot of them are very quite good and there's tens and tens there's probably uh, 30 to 50 different variations so i'm going to talk about all those different variations in a separate episode that will be released shortly after this one called episode 36x expansions and Spin-offs for settlers so if you know settlers backwards and forwards you may want to just skip past this episode and go give episode 36x a listen Now let's get to Settlers of Catan. Settlers is a very special game, like I said, to me personally, because it represents my rediscovery of board games. I played board games all uh, as a child through elementary school and then got into role-playing games and collectible card games. And Settlers in about circa 1998 was the game that brought me back to board games. And I've played this game probably close to, if not more than a hundred times. Um, this was the game that we played in college, supplemented later with the Cities and nights variation, and then more so with couples uh, when we lived in New Hampshire and our neighbors when we moved to Buffalo. And I've just had so many great experiences with this game. And if you have not yet had this experience, I urge you to learn this game and play it. In Ludology episode 19, the topic was what makes a good multiplayer interactive game? What is different about that experience than a two-player experience? And this was my sample shining example for what a good interactive game should be. Uh, the turns are nice and quick there's so much interaction with the amount of negotiation and diplomacy that goes on between the players I think the real hallmark of this game is that the experience is completely diminished if you try playing this in an electronic format, this is a game you have to sit face to face with three of your best friends and and you'll just have a great time because of the amount of interaction and, and interplay that goes on between the players and that is created by such a simple, clean set of rules. Who doesn't like this game? Well, on the more gamery side, people who really take their games seriously and who complain a lot about die rolls—that oh, the whole game is about who gets rolled more. No, no, it's not. It's about the social interaction. It's about negotiating good deals. About the diplomacy that goes on in the game. And if you're going to complain about how the person next to you won because they got a couple more eights than you got sixes, well, then you're missing the point of the game and you're. Probably not a very fun person to play games with. This game is more about that personal interaction, the diplomacy and the negotiation that goes on in the game. It's probably less so of a strictly strategic experience. There are strategic choices to make, but it's more so about that interaction with your fellow players. On the other side of things, people who don't like that interaction, that are very introverted and and don't really like to try to haggle deals or try to pit one player against the other, if that's something that you're not interested in, they may not like this. This is a game that you sort of have to invest a little bit. It's not going to play the game for you. We get into a complexity rating for this game. The game does not have very many rules, but I'm still going to call this game a blue square. And here's why, because I've played this game a few times, and it has crashed and burned with some non-gamers. And the reason for that is that the people who play this game actually have to sort of figure out how it works. They have to, as I said, invest themselves in the game. They have to go after trades, they have to figure out you know, what they need to purchase things, figure out where is the best place to put things. If they sort of just try to sit back and detach themselves from the game, it's going to make for a really long 60 to 90 minutes. So the complexity rating, I'm calling it a blue square, which is less so for the actual complexity and more so because of the actual amount of investment required by the players. The Settlers of Catan was designed by Klaus Teuber, a very important designer, and we'll talk about a lot of his works in this following episode of 36 X. The Settlers of Catan was released in the year 1995 and one of the reasons it was such an important game is because this was one of sort of the first big Euro games that term Euro game comes from a game from Europe and it was brought over to America and it started to become very popular and brought a lot of people like me back into the hobby of board gaming and exploring a lot of these unique ideas and these different kinds of board games, board games that were different than anything that we had seen before. They weren't roll and move. They weren't direct conflict. They were about sort of engine building or civilization building or auctions and set collection and had a lot more indirect interaction between the players that captured the interest of hundreds and thousands of people and hopefully it will capture your interest here as you play your first games out of the box it plays three or four players only there are optional expansion sets that allow you to play with five or six my recommendation is that this game is perfect as a four-player game you really want four. it is significantly better For me, having three people in a trading game is just not quite enough. When you have five or six, the game lengthens too long for what you want it to be. They throw in this rule to try to fix things, to let you burn through your cards, and it's kind of a duct tape fix, and it actually makes the game worse. So I I do not recommend the 5-6 expansion. I really would say this is for four players. I think you're going to sour your experience if you try to introduce this to people with six players. All right, let's get into it. Uh, Ideally, you'll have that game right there in front of you or a picture of the board so that you can visualize as I go over the rules and explain how to play this game to you. Let's do it. Let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to the Settlers of Catan. In this game, you and your fellow players are attempting to colonize the beautiful, fresh, new territory of Catan. The winner of the game will be the first person to obtain 10 victory points by collecting and trading these resource cards, and then using those resource cards to build settlements or cities. Constructing a new settlement on the board is worth 1 victory point. You can also convert those existing settlements and turn them into a city and then they will be worth two victory points. So you'll be building these settlements and these cities and the first player to reach the goal of 10 victory points will win the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So what do you do on your turn? Well, a turn in this game is very simple. You'll have two six-sided dice. On your turn, you'll roll those two dice. And the results of those dice will determine which resource cards that the players get. After you roll the dice and players get resource cards... Then, the active player is allowed to initiate trades with any of the other players. Then, with the cards that they get, the active player can make purchases. You can purchase things and trade in any order until you're finished with trading or purchasing. And on some turns, you may not want to trade or purchase anything. All you'll do is roll the dice and get cards, and that will be your turn. When you're finished trading and buying, you pass the dice to the next person, and the game continues in that way. So how are resources produced? To start the game, you have two settlements, and the settlements are placed in the intersections between the hexagons. The board is made out of a tessellation of hexagons. The hexes are of six different types. Each hex type tells you what it makes. For example, the forests produce wood and will get you wood cards. The fields produce grain and will get you grain cards. The pastures produce sheep and will get you sheep cards. The desert, you will notice, does not have a number tile on it, that's because the desert Produces nothing. All of the other hexes have numbers on them from 2 to 12. There is 1, 2, 1, 12, and 2 of each of the other numbers. On a player's turn, they will roll the dice. Say they roll the number 11. There are two tiles with the number 11 on them. Any player with a settlement adjacent to a tile with an 11 on it will get one resource card. For example, the white player may have a settlement adjacent to a forest with an 11 disc on it, and they would get a wood card. And the red player actually has two settlements adjacent to a field with an 11 disc on it, so they will get two grain cards. So when you roll the dice on your turn, you may not get any resources. Your opponents may actually get resources. So on each player's turn, it's your responsibility to, after the player rolls the die, to determine if you have produced any resources and take them from the bank. If you are a good mathematician you know that some of the numbers are much more likely to be rolled on two dice. You'll notice the sixes and the eights are colored red and that is because those are the most probable numbers to come up that produce resources. You'll also notice that the number circles have these little dots on them and those are to help you easily see the probabilities. You'll notice the 2 and the 12 only have one dot on them. That's because there's only one way to roll a 2 or a 12 and they're very unlikely to be rolled. And the sixes and the eights have five dots on them. This is important because as you continue with the game you'll want to build more settlements and you'll want to build on those numbers that have more dots. You'll want to build on the sixes or the eights. You may have noticed that there is no seven anywhere on the board. Seven is the most likely number to occur. If a player rolls a seven some special things happen. The first thing that happens is any players who have more than seven cards in their hand must discard half of the cards in their hand rounded down. So if I had nine cards in my hand and someone rolled a seven, I'd have to discard half rounded down, which is four. I would lose four cards. I'd choose which ones to get rid of. Then, whoever rolled the die gets to play the role of the robber and go steal a resource from another player. They'll pick up the robber token, which starts on the desert hex, and place it on a hex that's adjacent to one of the settlements to one of their opponents. I might put it on the the forest that has a four on it, and the red player and the orange player both have settlements there. This does two things. First of all, I get to steal a random card from one of those opponents. So I'd look at orange and red and decide who I think's ahead or who I don't like and say, I want one of your cards. And they would randomly shuffle their cards up and I would take one of them without looking at them. But the second thing it does is that the robber actually stands right on that number circle. And now when a four is rolled, that forest no longer produces wood because the robber is stealing it to make a little snow fort or something. But that robber is going to stay there and prevent that hex from producing until another player rolls a seven and moves it to a different location. So when a seven's rolled, if any player has more than seven cards, they have to discard half of their cards. Then they get to move the robber and steal a card from an opponent that's adjacent to that hex. And then that robber is going to stop production on that hex. So usually it's a good idea to put that guy down on a six or an eight. So I mentioned you can trade with the other players. How are you allowed to do that? Well, when it's my turn, I can look at my hand and say, I've got wood and I need some brick. I just announce that to the other players. I'm able to make deals. I could trade one wood for one brick, or I could be really stingy and say, I want two brick for my wood. However, the two players agree to it. Once they've agreed, they can make that trade. Other players, knowing that it was my turn and it was in my trading phase, could say, hey, Ryan, I have some ore. Do you want my ore? And they could approach me for trades, but they cannot trade with outside players other than me when it's my turn. You also are able to trade with the bank in this game, but you have to do it at a pretty high ratio. You can always trade Four of the same resource type for one resource of your choice. So I could trade four wood to the bank and the bank could give me one card of my choice. Four wood for one brick, for example. So normally this is a pretty steep price to pay. But if nobody will take my wood, it's a, it's an okay last resort. But they have to be the same. I can't do like two wood and two brick for whatever I want. That is called cheating. Don't forget about trading four to one with the bank. Now, you'll notice some of these circles on the coasts. These are harbors, and they allow you to improve your trade ratio with the bank. There's two different kinds of harbors. There's the generic harbors that have the question mark, and those allow just improve that rate from 4 to 1 to 3 to 1. Now, instead of 4 to 1, I can trade 3 of any resource type for one other type. There are five specific harbors. For example, we have the Wood Harbor. If I had a settlement on one of those two semicircles that was next to the two to one wood harbor, what that means is now I can trade wood to the bank at two to one. So if I'm getting a lot of wood, getting on the wood harbor would be a good thing. Because now I can cash in two wood and get one of whatever I want. A lot of times you have to trade two to one for players. And so now this gives you an option. You don't have to trade with those other players and get a pretty good deal with it. But you can only use that ability if you build a settlement on one of those edges of the board that indicates that special ability. So how do you buy settlements? How do you buy anything? Let's look at the cost of the things you can buy and what they do. The most basic thing you can buy is another settlement. You want settlements for two reasons, because they're going to give you another spot where you're going to be able to earn more resources. If you get another settlement in the middle of the board, that's going to give you three more numbers that you have the potential to get another resource card. And it's sort of like an engine. The more resources you get, then you're going to be able to build more houses and you'll get more resources and you'll speed up faster than your opponents. A settlement costs a wood, a brick, a grain, and a sheep. But here's the thing, you cannot have a settlement next to another settlement. So in order to be able to play more settlements, you're going to have to build at least one road. You start the game with two settlements, each with a road coming out of it, and everything you build after the beginning of the game has to come out from where you have starting pieces. So you cannot build a settlement at the start of the game because if you put a settlement down right there, it'll be adjacent to one of your settlements, and that is illegal. You're also not allowed to have a settlement adjacent to an opponent's settlement. So essentially, you need to have two hex sides away from you you as well as any other uh, opposing settlement so that's what you need roads for roads cost a wood and a brick and so you're just going to place those adjacent to where you have roads hopefully to find another legal place to drop a settlement remember the only condition is that there's no settlement adjacent to it if you don't want to build all those roads maybe you want to upgrade a settlement into a city This is good news because you don't have to build more roads to do this. What you're going to do is you're going to take off that little house piece, the settlement, and you're going to put that larger piece called a city where that settlement was. This costs three ore and two grain. It's quite expensive, but it does two things for you. Now, if you're adjacent to a four forest and a four gets rolled and you have a city now adjacent to it, instead of getting one wood card, you're now going to get two wood cards. Also, instead of being worth one victory point, the city is worth two victory points. So really, you've increased your score by one victory point because you had one, you added one more, so now the city is worth two. The final thing you can buy are called development cards. This is a deck of cards with special abilities. And it costs an ore, a grain, and a sheep to buy one of these cards. When you buy them, you have to wait a full turn before you can play them. And when you're playing them, you can only play one of these cards on each turn. Now, most of the deck, over half of the cards, are these cards called soldiers. So know when you're buying these, you're probably going to get a soldier. And what that allows you to do is, you remember that robber piece? It allows you to move the robber as if you had just rolled a 7. You're going to pick up the robber, put it on another hex, and get to steal a card from an opponent who has a settlement adjacent to that hex. This is useful to get that robber off your hex that produces a lot of resources and to deny your opponent resources. But there are some other cards in that development card deck. There's a few cards that simply just say one victory point, and you keep those hidden until, say, you're at eight or nine. So you're at nine, and you have that one victory point card, and you get to flip it over, and you say, I win! Some of the cards have special powers, like giving you two free roads or two free resources. But those are the four things that you can buy. More settlements, roads so that you can expand out and build more settlements, cities that replace your settlements and double your production, or these development cards. So I've mentioned three different sources of points so far. Settlements are each worth one point. Cities are worth two points. And you might get one of those victory point cards from the development card deck. But there's two other special ways to get points. And these are called the Longest Road and the Largest Army. And there are cardboard placards for each of those to designate someone who has earned this bonus. The Longest Road card first goes to the person who gets five roads in a row without branching so you can trace a line of five. As soon as someone does that, they get this card, and that card is worth two victory points for as long as they hold it. Now, another player can steal this card. There's only one of these cards, so an opponent can steal this if they get more than the person who's currently holding it. So if someone goes and builds their sixth road, then they would take that longest road from me and put it in front of them and go, ha ha, and then of course I could try to get seven and so on, and we would fight back and forth, but you have to get more the person who's currently holding it the largest army works almost the same way it's also worth two victory points and you get this with those soldier cards the first person to play three of these soldier cards will get this largest army card it takes quite a bit because as i said you can only play one of those each turn and you can't play in the turn you buy them But once someone does get three, they'll get this card. And if someone manages to get four soldier cards before the person who's holding the largest army card, then they could steal it from the person who's holding it. And that is pretty much all the rules of the game. To do a quick review, on your turn, you're going to roll the dice. For most numbers, say eleven. Eleven has two hexes on the board that will produce resources. So you find those tiles. Maybe it's a forest and a mountain. And you see if anyone's adjacent to those two tiles those players would get a wood or an ore card respectively Then the active player gets to trade and make purchases. They would trade with the cards in their hand if they wanted to. And if they had enough to buy something, they would buy something. If not, they would just pass the dice. Sometimes you don't have a lot of cards. You you don't even make a trade. You just pass the dice. And it goes around and around and around and around until someone totals up. And amongst cities and settlements and development cards or one of those special bonus cards, if they can total up to 10, they will declare that they are the winners of the game and the Lord of Catan. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. So how do you win this game? This is a very simple engine game. Your settlements and cities produce resources. So if you are able to get more of those than your opponents, you will start generating more resources than your opponents, and then you'll be able to build more and get faster and be able to win while they are still twiddling their thumbs. So the whole goal of the game is to increase that production as quickly as possible. So you want to build settlements or cities, whichever you can do faster, and you want to build them on numbers with higher probability. You don't want to build a settlement on the 2 and the 12 in the desert, or you don't want to build settlements way out on the coast that's only adjacent to one number. You want to be on two or three numbers with as many dots as possible, where 11 dots is a fantastic spot, and something like 7 or 8 dots would be a mediocre spot. Those development cards can seem tempting, but really you should only be buying those as a last resort. If you can do anything to get yourself closer to making another settlement or a city, you should do that before buying a card. And in most cases, when you're buying a card, you're getting rid of a ore and a grain that's going to deny you the ability to upgrade to a city. So it's usually a bad plan unless you have a bunch of cards you don't know what to do with and you're stuck. Nobody will trade with you. Then maybe you're in card buying land. So the other key to being able to build those Settlements and cities faster than anyone else is to get the cards that you need. And to get the cards that you need, you need to be an active negotiator. You should be involved in every player's turn. You should not be. Picking your belly button while the other players are playing. You should be trying to initiate trades with them. When it's another player's turn, say, What are you looking for? I got a lot of extra ore. Do you want my ore? I want this. And know what you need in order to build another city or a settlement. You have to stay involved negotiating on just about every turn that someone is looking to trade. This is not a game where you can get up and make brownies in the middle of other players' turns. Not only do you have to negotiate in trades, you also might have to involve a bit of diplomacy in a lot of the other aspects of the game. When someone hits that seven and you're figuring out who to put that robber on, think very carefully. Look at the situation. Try to figure out who's generating the most amount of resources. Who's the most ahead? When you're making trades and you have the choice to trade between two different people, look at your board situation. Decide who's a little bit too far ahead. Who can I afford to make a trade with? When someone gets to sort of 7 or 8 land, then they're in danger of winning the game and taking the game away from you. So you need to maybe possibly boycott them and try to encourage other players to, to robber them or to stop trading with them as well. This is a part of that game, and if, if you don't want to play that type of game, then then maybe this isn't the game for you. You should really just just have fun with it. Get involved in the spirit of, you know, trying to convince people to, to trade with you and not them and, and encouraging people to put the robber on your wife or your, your buddy or whatever. Get into it. I mean, that's that's a big part of the fun of this game. But that's it. That's all you have to do. Generate resources faster than the other players and talk your opponents into making good trades with you and keeping that robber away from you and just repeat this phrase over and over again. I am not winning, because once your opponents are convinced that you are winning, things are not going to go well for you. So good luck in your quest for colonization in trying to become the Lord of Catan. Part 4. Footnotes. And a final footnote here is about game setup now the first time you play this game there is a pre-setup board and i highly recommend you're playing with new people set it up as the board shows you and use that beginner setup because (laughs) players have to make critical decisions at the beginning without really understanding the game you don't want to really put them in that situation other than you know you might just have to tell them where to build their settlement and then you know, what's the point of doing that? Use the beginner setup. Now on following games, this is part of the fun of the game, is that you can randomly shuffle up those land and set up the board. You use a um, a pattern to put the number circles on the board so that there's a good differentiation between the sixes and eights and twos and twelves are spread out so they cleverly figured out how to do that in a spiral way so that the sixes and eight should not be touching but because of the way the terrain is because of where the desert is you'll have sort of a new experience every time you start the game with a, a placement phase and so you randomly determine a starting player and that player is going to put down one of their houses and an adjacent road and then the second player, third player, and then the fourth player. The fourth player is going to get to play two, and then you'll go in reverse order so that the player who played the first house will also play the last house. Now, this placement is probably one of the most important decisions that you're going to make in the game, so don't mess it up. A couple considerations to point out to new players. First and foremost, the probability numbers. All right, Look for those little pips. As I said, 11 or 12 pips is a fantastic spot, 8 or 9 pips is an okay spot, Um, you know, less than 8 pips is not really ideal, so you want to be ideally in the interior, probably for both of your two placements, so that you have three hexes around it, unless you've got two really good coastal hexes and maybe you get a harbor, but most of the time you want to play in the middle, so you get three hexes around it. The other things that are important, when you lay your two settlements, there are five different kinds of resources. You probably want to be adjacent to at least three different types, probably four. And the other thing that is a little bit subtle that some people don't pick up on is if you pick all the same numbers, that can be sort of a scary deal. Say one of my settlements is on 5, 9, and 10, and the other one is on 2, 9, and 10 now I really only have four numbers. I have two, five, nine, and 10. So actually being on different numbers, if you can have six different numbers, none of which are two or 12, you're you're closer to that middle, you're going to be probably happier with it. Whereas if nine and 10 could come out a whole lot and you'll get a ton of resources, but it's more likely that they won't, it's sort of that high risk, high reward. Whereas if you stay somewhere in the middle, then you're more likely to at least get something that you can trade with and advance in the game. So that's my advice for initial placement. A lot of pips is good, a variety of resources, and you may want to stay clear of having the same numbers. That will do it for this explanation of The Settlers of Catan. I hope you enjoy this game at least a hundredth as much as I've enjoyed playing it over the last 15 years or so. If I think about games in my life that have given me just the most sheer enjoyment This would definitely be in the top five. If you've never played this, you're in for a great experience. This is just the beginning of learning a system. And once you've learned this, you can just learn all the different scenarios and and spin-off games that have come off of that, many of which are, are quite excellent. And so that's what I'm going to talk about in the upcoming episode, episode 36X. I'm going to get into the expansions, talk about which ones you should check out, which ones you should avoid, and how to deepen your love of the the world of Catan, because it's really a phenomenal series of games. So that's going to do it for episode 36. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com for all the How to Play resources to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach and play great games the how to play podcast is part of the dice tower network the premier board gaming media network featuring ludology and the flagship podcast the dice tower find out more at dicetowernetwork.com